<laughs> or maybe the Dharma and consumerism. But I thought I'd, I've been considering um, the culture we live in and, and how it cultures us because we're not separate from it, although we like to think, uh, you know, it's a consumer society and I'm sort of not. There's always sort of that separation that we like to put in there between us and it. Um, but we're pretty embedded in uh, our, our culture, our society, and um, our relationship to consuming as a practice is, is uh, um, part of right livelihood, actually. And so it's, it's, it's directly on the Eightfold Path and part of the Buddhist path uh, of awakening. And so being aware of our, um, our, the, our consumer habits and the way it, uh, you know, uh, we relate to our consumer society is, is, uh, uh, is part of the, the practice. Um, there's a little haiku that was written by uh, a guy named David Loy. Anybody know him? He's, yeah. Um, David Loy, as interpreted by Santa Caro Bhikkhu. Um, so I assume David wrote it, and I'm not quite sure what Santa Caro did. But it's a haiku. The meaning of my life. Buying and owning things, then throwing them away. <laughs> Anybody not not there? <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it's it's actually it's amazing because we're so embedded in this culture, which is which is th- this culture distills um, our naturally occurring uh, greed and longing and distills it into a, a form of economy. Um, and it, it uh, creates some very deep habits in us. Anybody here not like bargains? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, did bargains exist as bargains, you know? In, in over over history, really, um, getting the most and paying the least. You know, and, and we are we are. Anybody just you know leap onto the internet and order the first one of whatever it is you see. Oh, we shop. You know, we like to compare, or we we do. We we uh, um, and it culture it cultures are are. Our psychology. You know, we um, we become. Well, anybody here have on their on them on their person right now at at this point anything that they made from natural sources? (laughs) No. The the basic necessities of our life are things that we. Buying and own, and then throw away. And we're so it, the, it's so deeply interconnected. I came across this, I think. So I I copied it some time ago, and the, from a book, and I don't know <laughs> what the book was because all it says is introduction <laughs> at the top. But we're embedded in it. It's, a glo- it's global. And, and this is, so what exactly does this global consumption look like on the ground? Let's take an example that illustrates the far-reaching impacts of North American consumption. Coffee. Say the average person drinks two cups a day. A year's worth of coffee, coffee is about 18 pounds of beans per year, which require 12 coffee trees along with 11 pounds of fertilizer and pesticides. In the processing, 40 pounds of coffee pulp are released into rivers, consuming life-supporting oxygen as they decompose. The beans travel to the United States and are roasted using natural gas. After being packed in multi-layer bags, they are shipped by trucks, getting six miles to the gallon, to a regional warehouse. Coffee is the second leading export crop in the world after oil. 
and is the second largest source of foreign income for developing nations. In the cool highlands of Costa Rica, Brazil, and Colombia, thousands of acres of biologically rich tropical forest have been cleared to support the North American boom in espresso shops. I didn't read that to, to, to condemn what's going on. It's just, look at how deeply we're embedded in all of these processes. You know, our interconnection is, um, we, although this culture enculturates us to think of ourselves as individuals, we all are individuals, right? Unique, and we're individuals. If I said, how many individuals are there? All the hands would go up. <laughs> um, and, and as individuals, we're um, in, engaged in the world, but we don't see our, how the, the tendrils go into everything. Coffee, but, but I, I like to think sometimes there's a, there's a great um, George Orwell line. Uh, we sleep soundly in our beds because harsh men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would harm us. We don't engage in violence, but we sort of outsource it you know, to create an environment. So we're so embedded in this culture, we, don't, we almost don't see it as like fish in water. We just take for granted. Um, I was thinking about... Uh, we were talking about buying a new car. Henry Ford used to say, you can have whatever color you want as long as it's black. <laughs> you know, I, I, now everything is customized. And customized to an extent, and personalized to an extent that, I mean, we almost don't notice it now, but I, I, I think of it as uh, ego casting. You know, we, we just listen to the music we want to listen to, we go to the websites we want to see. We don't. Anybody here hang out at uh, redstate.com a lot? Probably not. You know, we we um, are are embedded. We we don't um, and we don't notice the fact that we are constructing a world that suits suits us. Um, hmm. Acquiring things is not a path of awakening. Just, just to clarify, when we, so <laughs> um, and and yet we spend our time doing that. We don't. We don't. I mean, as an economy, we we consume more than we produce. Um. We, we purchase, because we don't, we don't make so much ourselves, really. I mean, look at, you know, we don't make our clothes, we don't, uh, and this is relatively recent historically, but we don't even notice it. Um, we, we, what we make is, is money. You know, it's a, an abstract, I mean, we're, it's very abstract. But it becomes uh, a large part of the way we relate to the world and our experience. Um, and we purchase a good time. You know, food, tasty, fun, interesting. Um, I mean, there are people who are into food and will spend a lot of time making it, but I sort of go out, we go out. In, you know, I, I watch my kids and they, uh, they entertain at coffee shops or, you know. Um, we consume our information you know, and, our, and, and our knowledge. Uh, we consume our experience, travel. Travel's, you know, it's not adventure. Adventure sort of implies the possibility of failure. You know, then, then there's some, something on the line. But we can have you know, a, uh, a Mexican adventure. I guess maybe you could. Um, 
a Hawaiian adventure. Um, you know, I mean, we, we market things to distill that longing in us that is naturally there, but we distill it and condense it. That wanting. There is this, you know, the heart of dukkha is a, a sense of lack. We're missing something. Not complete. Not enough. And in this, this culture, the idea is generally you can fill that sense of lack with buying stuff. <laughs> you know? Um, we, we customize our identities and, and uh, encrust ourselves in a collection of artifacts that reflect and, and, uh, and uh, create who we are. You know? Do we drive, anybody here driving a Hummer? We have a different identity. You know? um, uh, you know, we, but there are, there are scenes where, where that's not uh, uncommon. We clothe ourselves in our identities and display them um, you know, I think of I think of travel as as uh, something that we consume. Um, there's a, a George, and I I thought of this because I just the past week I was uh, reacquainted with an old George Harrison song. It was a, actually a Beatles song, not didn't get a lot of play. This was the flip side of the Lady Madonna 45. If you can remember 45s, we're, we're, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess today would be a Colt 45. It's called the inner light, and the and the language is without going out of your door, you can know all things of earth. Without looking out of your window, you can know the ways of heaven. The farther one travels, the less one knows. Not particularly a a uh, contentment is not <laughs> is not a uh, a virtue. Anybody? It's it's almost not even publicly acknowledged as a as a goal of of life i understand although i i don't follow thai politics real closely but i understand that in the past decade or so there's been a real push towards um uh, consciously changing the notion about contentment. And contentment is, shouldn't be a goal of social uh, life because it doesn't spur the economy. <coughs> so we, we consume, we, but we buy, buy and own things and then throw them away. We... we um, this is, this is really um, part of right, right livelihood. Right livelihood, as the Buddha explained, was, well, he was talking about a different time. You know, it was, uh, there weren't managers of Safeway <laughs> then, you know, and people were much more directly related to um, sustaining their, their lives and we relate more more abstractly through through money. So there's, uh, you know, the monastic standard. The monastic standard is the four requisites: food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And then we've got entertainment, and you know, we've got a whole bunch of other things. Um, but we create our lives in such a diverse Manner, we actually finance a lifestyle. Is what our livelihood is 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 like. Um, I mean, we basically make money. 
and then we assemble a lifestyle out of the cultural elements that are present. Um, and, 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 you know, because we're so embedded in so much, it's very difficult to say. I mean, the Buddha said, right livelihood, he hardly talked about it at all. I don't think I've heard a Dharma talk on right livelihood. Um, five, five things you shouldn't do, and, you know, one of them is trading in weapons, trading in poisons, trading in living beings. I mean, uh, if you manage a Safeway, <laughs> or trading in meat, you know, if you manage a Safeway, you fall under all, all categories, pretty much. Um, you know, so we have to have a, a different standard, but right livelihood is, is, is part of our relationship to um, our consumer culture and our consumer habits, our own tendencies. And we, we, you know, how do we make, how do we make the decisions? And, well, interestingly, it's not that there's something wrong with consuming. You know, it's not, and the Buddha never, in fact, he was, he was uh, clear that enjoying one's wealth is, is not uh, a hindrance on the spiritual path. But one of the things that we do is we're, we're looking for, you know, what the Buddha calls gratification, you know, that hit of... Satisfaction, you know, and we occasionally get it. He said, you know, he, he said, if we weren't if we weren't getting that hit, some we'd give up, we'd go do something else, you know. If you want to get pigeons in a lab or rats in a lab to to do something, you reward them randomly, and not fully. Not right. Anybody. Now, what you do, so you, you know, you, maybe a 25% payoff randomly administered. Well, that's what happens to gamblers, you know. And in a sense, we're all sort of gamblers in this business of chasing satisfaction, chasing pleasant experience. Bhikkhu Bodhi likes to say, we uh, spend our lives uh, chasing pleasant experience, avoiding unpleasant experience, and figuring out how all this just relates to me. <laughs> you know. And so it's not like there's never a payoff. There's, there is a payoff. And we can spend a lot of time for, you know, for, that, for that hit. And so we, we attempt to culture an identity and a life out of the elements um, out of the elements in the culture that we find ourselves. And it can, it can get very ephemeral, even if, even if mundane. Anybody ever thumb through a catalog looking for something? You know, it's desire to, we're, we're desiring to have something to desire. <laughs> yeah, we're just looking for a target for it. And we don't even we don't even notice. It's just it's just so such a natural part um, of of the way we live. We we assemble uh, a lifestyle. Um, you know, with a right right lifestyle that seems pretty pretty grim, but <laughs> as a concept. But in a way, really. Um, it, it makes it makes more sense than right livelihood, because you you know if you're a clerk if you're a uh, a clerk does it matter whether you work for Halliburton or the Sierra Club, you know, and and then we're left with the the fact that we're embedded so deeply in in the the culture and events around us that you know we don't go out and hunt our own food but we. Outsource it. We outsource it. Um, and so the way we make our money is one thing, and the way we, the lifestyle we create, and we can actually 
uh, overextend and create a lifestyle that puts stress on our um, on the the creating side. You know, in the uh, Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, "Unburdened with duties and frugal in our ways." And and the idea is, I mean, we can we can not be unburdened. Um, Jimmy Fallon is a nighttime talk show guy. Um, I, I actually don't. I heard him on on uh, Fresh Air, and uh, he was being interviewed. I don't, I don't think I'd recognize him, <clears throat> but but he was asked, "Well, what do you do, you know, besides your work?" And he said, "Nothing. <laughs> he can't. If he wants to play a video game." He has to schedule it in. And from 6 to 6.30 on Thursday, I will play video games. He said, but then, you know, my wife wants some attention, so, so much for the schedule. But you can, you can be so, and, you know, and the payoff is that for his vacation, he probably gets to go to a pretty exotic cabana somewhere in the South Pacific where nobody can reach him, you know, for a week. Um, but you can put so much stress on your, uh, from your lifestyle, on, on your means of making a living, that we wind up overburdened. Um, and of course, the culture convinces us that we are what we engage in. <laughs> you know, um, and, and of course, the way out is not... To purchase your way out, you can't. You know, even though some some will buy little statues and stuff to try to enhance our spiritual uh, experience, um, but the way out is is through the cultivation of contentment, and contentment, in a way, is. I mean, in a, in a real way, is a, is the deepest dharma. You know, not not all uh, teachers agree, but I have uh, sat with scholars who say nibbana is upekka. Bhikkhu Bodhi disagrees, and and so does Tanjef for the monastics do. But equanimity is nibbana. Equanimity is a is uh, contentment, deep contentment. Equanimity means en- engaging, being able to engage whatever arises without aversion or clinging. And equanimity, to be, I mean, we, we try to culture equanimity ourselves in our practice, you know, through our, our Brahma Vihara practices, for example. But true equanimity is uh, unconditioned, which is interesting because that's what they say about nibbana. It's unconditioned. It means that if you're equanimous, except when, you know, so-and-so comes in the room or shows up on TV, I'm equanimous as long as they keep, you know, um, that's not really <laughs> equanimity. You know, equanimity is, uh, is unconditioned. Um, and contentment, the deepest contentment, would be, would be a f- equanimity. And that really undercuts um, all of our cultural habits. Contentment. I mean, if they make contentment, can advertise contentment? <laughs> be content. <laughs> you, I mean, you, it's not something you can market. Even if even if people want it, it's sort of like well, there are a bunch of different words that are used to describe the goal of our practice. You know, uh, peace. But usually that means I think of I always think of Richard Nixon, peace with honor. <laughs> you know, once everything gets cleaned up, then peace. <laughs> Once I get what I want. 
Um, I mean, true peace, of course. Peace in the, in the presence of whatever trials or joys. Sounds, sounds good to me. Um, but usually there's, you know, happiness is described. I think, isn't Thich Nhat Hanh talk about happiness as a goal? As, you know, the, but, you know, it can be understood as happiness versus unhappiness. Or it could be understood, in which case it's just another arising state. But true happiness isn't dependent on, on conditions. It, it can't be dependent on external sources, because if it's dependent on conditions, well then, it's easy to lose. You know, it's not. And, and um, freedom is another one of these, one of these uh, words that's used to describe sound. And again, it sounds good. I mean, freedom from slavery to the craving that arises and the aversion that arises. That they don't, or, or they don't, or we don't take the ball and run with it when they show up. Freedom, freedom from our wanting and our fear. Um, so, so the way out is not, um, isn't, you can't buy your way out. I, my, uh, my wife and my dearest friend who, who died some years ago was a, was a, uh, a conscious consumer, and when she was uh, when she was dying of, of cancer, she spent money in an effort to try to make herself feel better. She bought cars and ping pong tables and fireworks. <laughs> I mean, just amazing as a as a strategy for trying to deal with with uh, unpleasant. Uh, unpleasant realities. Uh, I was talking in the precepts class this morning. I think that's um, one of the targets of the third precept, which gets the third precept is usually translated as to, for the purposes of practice, I'll refrain from uh, sexual misconduct. But the Pali word is kamesu, michachar. Um, so it's it's really about sensual misconduct. And, and our culture, of course, encourages sensual misconduct. Uh, but an effort to buy your way out of, or consume your way out of, uh, indulge your way out of dissatisfaction. Um, and it's a strategy that, that's, uh, that's hyped, rather than equanimity. Or even, to, I mean, equanimity, even with dukkha, even with the dissatisfaction, contentment with old age, sickness and death, it's tougher, it's not quite as consoling. <laughs> um, but equanimity would embrace whatever is present. Cultivating awakening in the midst of consumer culture um, means first recognizing that we're embedded and that our own, you know, our unique, individual, personal, intimate psychologies are cultured um, in an environment where satisfying wants is really encouraged, you know. But, and it's encouraged by presenting happy people using products. You know, the only happy people I really, I mean, the people who are unfailingly bright and happy are the people in commercials. <laughs> they are, you know. 
as the as the the I, I, it always makes me laugh. I I I uh, have the TV on while I cook, and I'm usually cooking while the news is on. My God, it's drugs, you know. And and I you know you look over there every once in a while, and there are all these happy people, while the voiceover is talking about you know side effects that could include death. <laughs> and I sort of wonder. <laughs> But the but the people on the screen are happy, you know. Um, so trying to trying to to relate. So the first thing is to acknowledge our embeddedness, and uh, which which tends to make us think of ourselves as being separate. You know, even it's a very, it's very deep individualism. Um, I have a friend who's who, uh, whose background he came from India, and he said what's what's a really challenging in his relationship. He married someone who's who's American. He says that he says at a really deep level, she sees herself as an individual, but he sees himself as primarily. Part, a member of a of a unit of a social unit is very different from the way we see ourselves. You know, so even at a very deep level, um, the nature of our our culture and and uh, you're not you're not complete if you aren't wearing whatever or dressed like Lady Gaga. I, I enjoy her. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. So the, the Dharma practices, the, they're conventional Dharma practices that, uh, that, that help. Dana, which is uh, usually translated as, as generosity, but, but actually means giving, undercuts uh, our consumer. And it's not that it undercuts it. Hmm. Dana is is the is the Pali word for giving, and uh, the word for generosity is different. It's chaga, and so you, we practice giving in order to cultivate generosity, because the, the openness and generous heart really is is what we're working for. But sometimes, you know, you have to you have to. Uh, it's it's hard to work on our internal stuff. Anybody noticed? <laughs> yeah. So one of the, one of the ways is to set up a, a behavioral practice, and so Donna Donna can be that, um, and it it certainly undercuts consumerism, and sila as well. The the ethical practices. Because they restrain, the intention is to, uh, because of the resolve one makes in regard to the precepts, or just to uh, to abandon the impulses which lead to, or which 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 are uh, come from delusion, the delusion that we can make ourselves happy by getting what we want. Asila is a renunciation practice. The precepts are renunciation practices. Sitting on a cushion is a renunciation practice. <clears throat> because we, we and, and the word renounce makes me sort of feel, it, there's, there's a Christian thing in there. Renouncing the devil, aren't, for me anyway, there's, but there's this pushing away. And it's not so much pushing away. It's abandoning. It's just not taking it up. You know, not not getting sucked in, and these are these are insight practices, in a in a very important sense because when you resolve, for example, not to um, not to speak, not to take what not what's not freely given. If you actually resolve to do that, or make it, 
make, make any particular resolution. I resolve not to speak disparagingly of others. It's a form, form of right speech. If you actually resolve to do that, what do you do when all your friends are gleefully talking about Paul Revere? You know, there's been some question about what actually happened. <laughs> See, I can't, I can't control myself. <laughs> but I do it through, uh, sort of obliquely. <laughs> yeah. Don't disparage. <laughs> what is that line in the, in the Metta Sutta? But uh, don't despise any being in any state. So we, we, if you, you can get away with it if you're really subtle. But um, what happens if the state is Arizona? I'm sorry. What happens if the state is Arizona? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I still owe Arizona some money for speeding. They they took pictures of me in my car, and then sent me a letter saying I'd sped. <laughs> that was a while, quite a while ago. <laughs> um, yeah, what if the state is Arizona? So the traditional, the traditional Dharma practices, you know, uh, Dana, Sila, these are practices of, uh, uh, in a way, renunciation. Practicing letting go and not not clinging. Um, as I say, they're inside practices because when because the idea is to make that resolve and then carry it out. And and boy, what you've come up against is the impulses that arise that you've decided you're not going to, you know, act out on, like <laughs> Paul Revere. Sometimes renunciation, or Joseph Goldstein, I think it's Joseph Goldstein, says he prefers the term non-addiction. Now, freeing ourselves from addiction, non-addiction. Because, because the consumer habit is really almost, I mean, it, it, it's um, try not to. <laughs> uh, just try to restrain um, by selecting a particular food or a particular goodie or um, an entertainment program or a habit, just say, okay, here's one. I just it doesn't even have to be. It doesn't have to have any moral thing behind it. Just to just to say, I'm not going to do this for a day or a week or whatever, and see what happens. And what happens is the impulse arises. My gosh. It's an in, and and the the insight becomes possible because, like when you're sitting, um, you know it shows up. What shows up are are your thoughts, you know, and what shows up will be the impulses to uh, to consume. It's such, it really is a huge part of our of our um, and comparing and shopping and. Uh, I mean, try to walk around without a credit card or cash. You know, it's just it's we are in, just totally embedded in this, um, and you can you can see that if you were to resolve, really to resolve, and and I, and I, I make a distinction between I was talking about this in the precepts class this morning too, the difference between wishing and resolving. Um, and sometimes it's not so clear, but you can, I wish I could lose weight. I wish I could quit smoking. I wish I could practice every day. You know? Well, you, could, you, you can practice every You could resolve to sit every day. My wife had a practice before she became ill. She, she had a practice. She sat 
twice a day, 45 minutes every day, our daughter's wedding day. It was a, you know, it was a, a family legend. It doesn't, didn't matter. She would, I mean, because that was the resolve. Um, you can wish to lose weight. I wish I, I wish I didn't want this cake. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've all been there. I, you know, I wish I could control my spending, which so, so I'm controlling it by. I'm not doing one click anymore on Amazon. <laughs> you know, I mean. Um, And because, because there is a little um, a reward, it's like a treat, you know, um, because we get that little, little reward, that gratification, we keep coming back. The Buddha said there, there's a danger with the gratification, that is that at a certain point it won't pay off. Or you know the the pleasant situation, um, you know that you cultivated for quite some time can evaporate in the uh, the breath of a tornado. Oh my gosh, um, unanticipated, you know, and 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 that um, that's the danger of of being sort of unconsciously driven by our longings and fears and aversions. You know, it's not a matter of right or wrong, it's just that it leads to, it leads to our, own, our own suffering. And of course, the Buddha talked about, he talked about the gratification, the danger, and the escape. And the escape was well, it's abandoning. In the Four Noble Truths, each of the truths has a particular task that's associated with it. The Four Truths are one truth, one insight. It's the only insight that the Buddha was concerned about. It was the insight into the nature of suffering. This is the nature of suffering. This is the origin. This is the cessation. If you understood, if you understood dukkha, if you understood suffering fully, if you really understood it fully, you, you would know what conditions give rise to it and what conditions lead to its cessation. So all, the first three are, are, are all the same, and the fourth is um, the fourth noble truth, the path, um, is the description of the way an awakened being would live, and we can cultivate that. That's why it's described as the path. It's to be cultivated. The first truth, the nature of dukkha, that the dissatisfaction comes with the territory. If you are interested in satisfaction, you're going to be dissatisfied. <laughs> you know? And under, that, that truth is to be understood. The second truth is the truth of the origin of dissatisfaction, and it's a particular kind of wanting. You know, like Eskimos have 39 different words for snow. You know, in Pali, there are twenty-something different words for desire. We just translate as desire. So tanha is, is a particular kind of desire, craving, wanting. It's the it. It comes. We don't feel like we have a choice. You know, we. It's thirst. It translates to thirst. We feel that wanting the way we physically feel a thirst, a longing. And that's to be abandoned. That's the, the task associated. The third is uh, the, the truth of cessation. And the word is, not, is actually naroda, which means cessation. And it's different than nibbana, which is complete unconditioned. It's un, it's, it doesn't depend on conditions. Nibbana, once, once nibbana is realized, it's like seeing the earth from space. It's pretty hard to, to talk somebody back into thinking that the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, once you, once you see, you know, and once you see the origin of your dissatisfaction and the nature of your dissatisfaction, um, 
you know, the realization of the third precept, uh, the third truth, then you would be free. And, and the, the path is also the goal. So it's a sort of a fake it till you make it kind of thing. You know? Um, you know? I think the element that I was, what I was, was saying this morning, earlier, um, it's like, you know, you can have a basketball. Basketball is a sphere, it's brown, it weighs, I don't know, it's filled with air, you know, it's made of rubber. That's the eightfold path of the basketball. You don't just say, I'll take the brown part and leave out the, you know, you get it, it all comes at once. And the eightfold path all comes at once. It's all one path, and it just has different elements. And that, that uh, is the understanding element and, and intention, um, uh, ethical speech, action, and livelihood. And then the, the effort to practice mindful, stable mindfulness. All one, one element. So the abandonment of our our craving for, hmm, well, and the delusion, you know, the delusion that will make ourselves happy, that my poor friend, and, you know, the Ford Explorer that she bought didn't make her feel better for very long. So the trick is, is acknowledging that we're embedded and, you know, in this craziness, and then being willing uh, to refrain I mean being willing to do it, not just wishing you could so resolving uh, to practice you know, with, with, with the elements of our culture which means On NPR, they were talking about kids spend more time connected to the uh, to media than they if they measure in hours, then they're awake because because of multitasking. They're on the phone, they're on the computer, they got the you know. So I mean, we're just so so embedded we don't notice. And one of the things I do like about Lady Gaga, she said, uh, she's, she's willing to say, tell, talk about anything she does. And she said, well, the private place is inside. It can't, you know, it can't, it can't be, it's not, it's accessible just to her. And that's the place where, where we um, need to attend. And yet, the show, the cultural show, the, you know. The news comes not only with, and we consume our attitudes. We adopt the attitudes in the culture around us. It comes not only with a description of what happened, but how we should feel about it. You know. The default in our practice is to stay still and to say, stay silent. The Buddha really didn't ask much of the world except that he understand it. And so our task, that's, that's our task. I, you know, I think of, of um, some you know, small renunci- renunciation practices that we, can, that we can do to help us to highlight that and you can just pick a particular food, you know, take something and, and just try it for a bit. But a particular food that you, it doesn't even have to be something you like. It can be the sandwich that you buy every day at lunch, you know, and just um, refrain for purposes of practice, undertake the training of not buying Altoids. <laughs> For me, that would be tough. I munch them as I drive, and I drive a lot. Um, but it would be that kind of a thing. Um, or entertainment. You know, uh, Just the habits that we uh, have adopted, because habitual 
behavior. You know, we become, we become attached. And the problem was, there, although there's gratification, there's danger. And the escape is, is uh, freedom. Please. You know, I never really thought there was much to Lent. Lent was... Absolutely, yes. I, I always thought Lent was kind of a lost sort of concept. But as you describe it, if you, if you can simply be mindful of the whatever it is that you think you're going to give up, <clears throat> that it, it, I can, I can kind of get a better sense of it, although it also seems a little easier to just say, okay, that's it for chocolate, no chocolate today. Mm-hmm. And in, you know, it, well, okay, I could, I could deal with that. Try something, I don't know, whatever else, I'm not thinking of something, like tea. Sure. I would have a hard time going all, all day without tea. Uh-huh. And I would really need to be mindful of that impulse. But I must say that I think I like the idea better as you described coffee. What does it take to bring that cup of coffee to me? And so I, I think I like kind of becoming mindful in that way mm-hmm. or in that fuller way. Sure, absolutely. Rather than just I'm going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it, what kind of craving does it bring up uh-huh. with me? I, I think I like that fuller sense of mindfulness. Well, right understanding, right understanding means, as I understand it, <laughs> so of course it's right understanding, <laughs> it's about seeing things as they are clearly uh, without, without delusion. That doesn't mean pretending everything is all the same or to gloss it all but to look with some discrimination and keep track of the conceptual stuff that we come up with and our reactivity to it. And I think understanding, I, I love the idea of, of Lent. Never practiced it, but, but you're just, when I, you know, I used, <laughs> I, you know, I, I have friends who give up things for Lent. But it is a, it is a, uh, uh, it is a uh, renunciation practice, and can be and can serve as a mindfulness practice. Yeah, I think the uh, opportunity for renunciation is is fast uh, approaching uh, for the whole planet. Um, I mean, uh, with due respect, a lot of what you said, or most of what you said, we already know. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, sure. you know, I mean, we've got a vast population, uh, 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 and a vastly increasing population on a finite planet. So, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Western culture uh, has been exported to the East, and they're the people with the with the money and the growing appetite for that culture. Yeah. So it's not just exported; it's also yeah, there's, so there's, I mean, uh, 2.5 billion Chinese and Indians uh, who want to buy the mm-hmm. stuff that we have is clearly um, uh, not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the crisis is coming and the opportunity to renounce uh, will, will arise and then, you know, then we'll, as a planet, fully understand what dukkha is. Mm. Well, the, the, the question then is how should we live now? It's too late. No, how should we... No, I'm not talking about saving the planet. I'm talking about how should we conduct ourselves. See, people don't like to hear it's too late, but I mean, it it really is. (laughs) Well, but too late for what? Too late in terms... It's never... It's always the present. Right. And the question is, what what will we do in this moment? How will we live in this moment? Uh, with whatever vision of the future we have, how should we conduct ourselves? How should we be in relation to the rest of us in this room and the people we're going to spend the rest of the day with? You know, before the before and renunciation doesn't. You know, it's uh, um, or freedom. 
are, are things that we experience, we can experience. Um, and we can chase after what we want, which is what everybody on the planet's doing, what we've always done. It's that our culture has just distilled that and made it really, you know, the Buddha didn't have hedge fund managers. You know, he, he wasn't addressing hedge fund managers. Or even, even simple technology. I remember Ken Wilber, somebody asked him, what did he, you know, you're so smart, what do you know that the Buddha didn't know? And he said, how to drive a Jeep. <laughs> You weren't in touch. <laughs> in touch. Uh, and then yeah. I journeyed from there to Seattle and had the same experience with another member of my family, you know, who was sort of standing back and going, "What's mom on? You know, <laughs> she's so calm and she's content and she she's not asking for anything." And you know, it, it was just it was so interesting for me to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to a certain extent, to feel lonely in that place, um, mm-hmm. but understanding what that loneliness was referring to, you know, and that was that I was not part of the codependent family relationship anymore. I had actually found a place in myself that was truly. It's more happy. like solitude than loneliness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But. Um, I think I think that trying to be separate is um, it's not possible to be separate. Mm-hmm. We can't be separate. We're it's not just the culture we're embedded in. We're embedded. Well, it's the fact that all things are conditioned by all things. We depend on the biosphere, which depends on the planet's relationship to the sun and the sun to the galaxy and the galaxy of the Big Bang. We're dependent on the Big Bang. You know, so we, it's not a matter of being separate. That would just be a conceptual trick that we might perform. Um, because we, we're, we're, we're not. Um, the issue is to notice the ways in which we relate. Because what happens is we relate in an unskillful way and we suffer. And we suffer because we aren't noticing that. The desire for connection, you know, there's that longing again. And, and the first noble truth is, if you're looking for satisfaction, satisfaction is an issue, you're going to be dissatisfied. It comes with the territory. You know, not that there won't be a payoff now and then. There will be a connection now and then. You know? and, and, and that's the... the uh, the, pa- the addiction pattern. You know. So again, to, you know, the idea is to pay attention to, to that. What is that longing like? How does it feel in the body? What are the stories that, that, that uh, uh, are going along with it, that feed it? 
If only, I, you know, loneliness were gone, then, then, then I wouldn't lack. There's that lacking feeling. And the lacking feeling is the feeling of dukkha. In this culture, we come to think of it, you know, something that we can purchase the whatever it needs to fill that hole. Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's um, natural to um, want to feel separate from such a rotten society. It's such a rotten society. I, I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah, but you're but reacting to it, so you're, you're totally engaged. But you are. And so, uh, so you seek to understand it. Mm-hmm. And uh, by understanding it, you can uh, fend off the negative influences. Even more deeply, if you understand it, you will have compassion for all beings who are, who are um, involved even, in it. Even the capitalists. Even ourselves. <laughs> even ourselves. You know, compassion for sure. ourselves who are suffering in this... In this uh, in this setting, yeah. So I had an interesting challenge this weekend. I was back in New Hampshire. I have a niece who participated in the state Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. And um, I love the idea of Special Olympics. I donated to them for a long time. It's the first time I've actually gotten to see it. But I noticed every single volunteer had a Coca-Cola label on the logo on the back of their shirt. Mm-hmm. And the only food available at the site um, was fast food, which I do have an aversion to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, I could stay con- contented with, I'm just not going to eat that, so yeah. we're going to walk six blocks off campus into town to get real food instead of food-like substances. But it's also <laughs> terribly distressing to me to see how much out of the mainstream I am, and especially kids that are already so challenged to be making them sicker intentionally. That it's a really, really tough one. It's tough because we think it shouldn't be that way. Instead of just engaging in the pain that comes with the fact that it is that way. And then working from there. You know, the judgment is its own source of suffering, or its own suffering. Yeah. And there's, you just... Can you deepen that just a little bit? About the judgment? Well, it just, it's... Um, because because the, the Special Olympics are financed by Coca-Cola in exchange for displaying their logo. So they are... In, they are, they're out there in left field that, that uh, when you go see the Giants, they are part of our culture. And they, you know, they, they, they finance, I mean, you look at the, the, the French Open and there's labels all, you go to a little league field, there's local, I mean, that's what we do. That's how you become, and that's the way it is. And our aversion to it doesn't change that, it just adds our aversion to it. And we may not be able to do anything about it, like we can't do anything about the weather. But our judgment and our aversion are, are our own suffering. And that doesn't mean that there's sadness isn't appropriate. It is sad. And we... it is. Way in the back, and uh, yeah. Before you, before you started talking about how you know, the financing, I mean, to me, what I look at is I really try to look at it as um, the, the struggle between good, you know, sort of wealth. So there's a lot of stuff that people you know, they find aversion to, and they give a lot of money uh, to some wonderful causes that allow for some wonderful things to happen. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm in that situation, that's what I try to bring up. I try to bring up what they are doing that I'm not averse to and balance out the two Well, it's recognizing it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. And that there are, you know, the 
that they have that capacity where a lot of other uh, people, better food producers, whatever, would not have that capacity to sponsor the Special Olympics or to... Yeah, the hedge fund guys don't aren't, aren't out there. Right. <laughs> so, that's how I do it. Well, there's it's the cup half empty, cup cup half full, and I like to think that the cup is just too big. <laughs> that's another question: How do you sort of you know you have the sadness, but then there's also a sense of well, I'm I'm smarter or a smugness. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that well, well I can see things. Just notice that, yeah. you know, and 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 it's overcoming a fear of a, a a sense of I'm not enough. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.